Our next guest has many distinctions, and probably the most noteworthy is the unique distinction of having been the only chief economist in the Federal Reserve System's history. As the former chief economist and senior vice president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Dallas, he served 25 years advising the president on monetary and economic policies. He is widely published in the nation's leading business press, including the likes of the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, USA Today, as well as being a much sought-after media expert for national radio, television, and internet programs, including CNN, Fox News, National Public Radio, just to name a few. Today, he's going to give a little insight on a talk that he's spoken around the country on, how to make good money in a bad economy. So it's with great pleasure I welcome Dr. Michael Cox. Welcome, Dr. Cox. Thank you, Jim. Nice to be here. Hey, it's great having you on. I know I heard you a couple months ago, and it's good to have some optimistic output, especially when we watch the news today, everything seems so negative. And I know one of the negative issues you talked about, you also talked about opportunities, and that was we're in a bad economy. So what do you mean by bad economy? Well, you're right that I'm optimistic long-term, but I'm a little bit pessimistic short-term relative to, say, the last quarter-century boom we had. If you look at Certain signals on the economy, like the unemployment rate, which supposedly is officially 6.1%. If you look at, um, say, the stock market, you're going to come to a conclusion, perhaps, that this is a good economy. But if you dig a little bit deeper, you'll find out that the reason the unemployment rate is falling is because people are dropping out of the labor force. And by the miracles of the way the Bureau of Labor Statistics calculates unemployment, if you're no longer looking for a job, even if you don't have one, you're not counted as unemployed. Putting them back in and the unemployment rate really is closer to 11% than 6%. GDP is growing, but it's growing at about half the rate it did in the 25-year boom we had from 1982 to 2007. The inflation rate is low, but there's a whole lot of money in the pipeline, which could make inflation just skyrocket. So digging a little bit deeper, what you find is that these are peripheral signs of a good economy, but it's not good underneath the surface. Now, you mentioned the stock market's going gangbusters. Those are my words, not yours, but we have seen a nice run in the stock market. What's going on with that? Right. The stock market hit a high just, what, a week or two ago, over 1,700 on the Dow, sold off some since then. But if you look at that peak, actually, the Dow is only up about 20% from where it was in October of 2007. So that's six and a half years of run of the Dow. We've been able to get up about 20% going back to that peak. Now, if you annualize that and put it up to a 25-year basis, right? So it's six and a half, compound it, 25 years. It turns out the Dow would be up if it continued to go up at the rate it has been going for the first six and a half years for the completion of this quarter century would be up about 94%. Now, let's compare that to what it did the quarter century from 1982 to 2007. The Dow was up 1,750%. So this really isn't even a bull market. Even if you take it to its highs, we haven't really gone that far. But that still prompts the question. You say, well, why is the Dow even up? You want to talk about that? What's pumping the Dow up to where it is? Absolutely. Well, that, I've done some really serious research on. I've gone back and taken the Dow, which I think the Dow started third quarter of 1896. It was either second or third quarter of 1896. And I've used 118 years of data to plot to figure out what drives the Dow. And I have identified four variables that can explain about 98% of the movement in the Dow. One of them is just simply GDP, because when you produce GDP, you produce earnings, and the earnings go in the top line of present discount value of expected future after-tax earnings, which is supposedly what a rational market would price the stock at. Another thing that the Dow depends on is the tax rate. When you take the earnings away that companies earn and govern takes them rather than people, that drives the Dow down. Also, the price level. These are monetary earnings. And so if the price of their goods that firms sell go up, then the earnings should go up and the price of their stock should go up. 
but also the interest rate. What we find in this analysis is that all those variables are highly statistically significant when you do what graduate students in econometrics and economics call hypothesis testing econometrics. What we find is that by far the most significant variable is the interest rate, and we find that for each 100 basis point movement in, say, the 10-year T-note rate, that's a one percentage point movement or 100 basis points up in the interest rate, the Dow has historically fallen by 10.5%. So the Fed's policies of driving interest rates to unprecedented lows has been the primary variable driving the market to unprecedented highs. And said another way, the Fed is creating a bubble. So let's talk about interest rates. What do you feel about rising interest rates? And we haven't talked about the bond market and the impact on that. What would rising interest rates do overall for investors? Well, we think we saw what it would do according to this 118 years of data. It was a one percentage point increase in the interest rate would drive the market down 10.5%. So if we're going to go back up to, say, 4.7% average long-term T-note rates, which is the long-term average, you're talking about the market having to sell off in the broad index is over 20% as an estimate. What's not so important really is the exact decline. What is important is understanding is if you're going to continue to participate in thinking the market was going to go up by buying, 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 going long in market indexes at a time when we're poised for interest rate increases, you're truly gambling. You're not being scientific about it anymore. The market says that that doesn't happen historically very much at all. Usually, interest rate increases drive the market down. Now, you asked about the interest rate increases. We saw, I think, what could happen to the market if interest rates increase. We saw that back at the first part of this year as the baton changed from Bernanke to Janet Yellen. Everybody thought she was going to come in and do what Bernanke had not done. He was bubble boy, creating interest rates down, down, down his whole tenure. People thought, well, we painted ourselves into a corner. We've got to reverse this now. She'll do it. So just the thoughts of her raising interest rates caused the market to tumble. It looked like the party was over. But then she came in and said, you know, I'll be happy, Janet. I'll be easy, Janet, the dove that she's always known for being. I'll be that after all. It's not my nature to be tight. I'm not a Paul Volcker. I'm more like a G. William Miller. Then the rates started to come back down again from their peak in December or 31st of last year. And as they did, the market went back up again. And so we've seen that the relationship between interest rates and the market is still there. It's still strong. And I think that's what we're seeing right now with the market sell-off. We're seeing the expectations that the Fed is going to pass tapering. They're going to start to raise the Fed funds rate, and we're going to be in an increasing interest rate environment going forward. I've talked to some mortgage bankers in the recent weeks and months, and they all thought interest rates were going up, and they're surprised that we're still in this low interest rate environment. I've heard some cynics say the biggest buyer of debt is the U.S. government, and they have no interest in raising the interest rates, and maybe we'll just stay at low interest rates. Do you see that as a possibility? Absolutely. In fact, this was something that came up on Fox. I was on Fox earlier last week, and Liz Clayman there brought this up. She said, what are the views of the Fed right now? I said, look, there are two views. One view is the Keynesian view, the view that the Fed is doing this on purpose, driving interest rates down in order to stimulate demand, drive up stock prices. That creates wealth people spend. You lower interest rates for firms they can refinance and spend. You lower interest rates for mortgage borrowers and so People buy a house. But then that's one view of Fed. Maybe there's another view which we should entertain as being correct because this is a view which really you could ascribe to Japan. And that's the view that the central bank has been pretty much co-opted by government and other political players to help them and not the private sector, help not help business, but help government and their political friends. And so if you think about it, low interest rates help the Treasury with $17.7 trillion worth of debt outstanding, which requires interest servicing. Low interest rates helps them. That's one branch of government, one agency, the Fed, helping another formal branch of government, the Treasury. 
Also, low interest rates help Fannie and Freddie, another semi-government agency. They, Fannie and Freddie needs to issue their mortgage-backed securities, and it's easier for them to do them when people want to buy them in a low interest rate environment than a high interest rate environment. In fact, that's what the Fed has been buying. If you look at the Fed's balance sheet, they've been mainly buying mortgage-backed securities recently. So that looks a little crony-ish. Plus, the low interest rates help the big banks. Big banks now, the most recent data shows, are loaning in their credit card market at about 15.1%. But on the cost of fund side, they're borrowing in CDs of 26 basis points. So that big spread because of low interest rates enables them to be very profitable as well. And there's been some feeling that the big banks in New York have kind of co-opted the New York Fed and maybe even some other banks. Where does this lead? We should talk about where this leads if we keep on this low interest rate policy forever. Why don't we do that? Well, if you look at Japan, when the Nikkei plunged in the early 1990s, Japan had been on a tear, right? The Japanese economy running off, doing great for three or four decades. Then the economy started to get soft. Now, it got soft because of China and because the world demand for goods was shifting from the relatively high-cost Japan to the relatively low-cost China. But Japan, Central Bank didn't really understand that or thought they could correct it anyway with their interest rate policy. After the Nikkei crashed from about 40000 to under 20000 in the early 1990s, the Central Bank of Japan said, let's follow this Keynesian monetary policy we've heard about. Let's cut interest rates. So they did some actions in the Fed funds and everything, the T-bill rate in Japan from about 5.5% down to near zero, less than a half percent. Well, it didn't stimulate the economy. And they kept thinking, well, it's going to. You know, we just got to do it some more. So they kept on cutting it and keeping it down there. And they, it's going to. It's going to work. Now it's been almost 20 years of low interest rates, more than 20 years of low interest rates. And still, the Japanese economy is not performing. Their third lost decade of jobs. GDP is not growing. Manufacturing is not growing. And if you ask why the Japanese central bank is doing that, and you look at, well, how about the fact that Japanese debt relative to GDP is 260%? Already, a third of their budget is spent just on interest on the debt. Imagine what would happen to their budget if the interest rate went back up. So essentially there, the central bank now has been bought by the Treasury, and that's the same direction America's headed. But it's not good for the economy. A central bank whose efforts are directed toward helping the government is not a central bank which is going to help the economy. Let's take a short break. When we get back, let's talk about taxes. If you want more information on this program from your real wealth professional, just click the More Information button so they know to contact you. Welcome back as we continue to visit with Dr. Michael Cox, a global economist, as we're discussing some of the challenges that face investors going forward. Before the break, we talked about we really don't have that great of an economy. The stock market is kind of teetering and has been growing based on these low interest rates and then all the effect that a change in these interest rates or staying the same can have. Let's talk about taxes. I've heard it said that right now America has the highest corporate tax rate. I know our personal tax rates, the Supreme Court said that Obamacare is part of our taxes. So we've seen tax rates increase on a personal level, both with the last budget bill and the passage of Obamacare. What impact is all that going to have? You know, the Wall Street Journal ran an article today where they surveyed adults to see whether they thought that their kids were going to have a better life than them. And a record, nearly 70% of the adults felt like their kids would not have as good a life as them. They felt like America is on the wrong path. And I completely agree with that. I think America is right now, with this big left turn we've made, with so many people seeking to live at the expense of others, we're on the road to serfdom. F.A. Hyatt, Friedrich Hayek's book, The Road to Serfdom, is the road we're on. There seem to be two views of the American dream right now. The one which I adhere to and grew up with and yesterday's immigrants came here for, and that's the dream of opportunity. Come in here and I'll respond to the incentives around me to start a business, work hard, get educated, 
be personally responsible. I like the economic freedom. Give me a meritocracy. I'll pull myself up by my own bootstraps or my own bookmarks, and I will make a better life for myself, and I'm strong and self-reliant and self-independent. I can do it. That path leads to progress and wealth, naturally, and I'm, all your clients will understand that. You know, it's good personal responsibility, good choice-making that leads to success in a person and in an economy. But increasingly, you find another kind of an American dream out there, and that's the dream to live at the expense of others. People seek a government, and they sometimes move to states for this, which will redistribute income from the rich to the poor. What they see is an unfair economy of the haves and the have-nots. They're willing to be our dependent as long as they get what we produce, and they'll vote for a big government who will redistribute the income. And that leads, of course, that path has always led to decline and to poverty, and this is what Hyatt called the road to serfdom. So I was particularly surprised at the last election, frankly, the re-election of President Obama, that Americans voted to stay on this path. That, to me, tells me this is a chronic problem. You can't blame it on a particular person like our so-called political leaders. We have to look at who is America now. I think America is at war inside our country with ourselves, one group fighting another, and it's happening because of the increased inequality that has been going up since the early 1970s. That, by the way, is coming from a failure of our educational system. That's another article in today's Wall Street Journal. Failure of a high school degree to be worth something on the job market. Seventy percent of Americans don't get beyond high school, and if they're going to be in the middle class, then high school education has to have substantial intellectual capital. It doesn't, and as a result, we have a wide income distribution, and the clamoring for income redistribution is not going to stop. I was very surprised to see that Thomas Piketty's book, Capital in the 21st Century, has become so popular and bestseller on the New York Times list. This tells me that the mood of America today is the majority of the Americans today are ready to vote to take money from others. That means taxes will continue to go up, and I think that's going to happen for a long time. I know that was a lot, but I wanted to say all that just to form the basis for why I believe, as a client of a money manager group, I need to understand that it's very important today to do everything I can to protect myself from taxes. Not evade, but definitely avoid taxes. Well, we talked about a lot of things that probably make it seem like it's just kind of hopeless out there, but there are opportunities, and we started the program by saying you're an optimist. So what should people do considering all these factors? Are there still opportunities to make a return on their investments, a real return, net after tax? That's the great question, of course. Even if things are going down, there's always a way to make money. For example, if we know a company's going to fail, like GM, I can make money off of that. I can sell it short. So, yes, even in a bad economy, there are good ways to make money. That's why I give this presentation, making good money in a bad economy. I call this an alternative economy. It's not the strong economy that we had for the 25-year boom, where the Dow went up by 750%, interest rates were coming down, you can make good rates of returns off bonds, even money funds were paying 5 to 7%. All the traditional investments, stocks, bonds, and money funds, just don't really have a hope of performing this decade or decade and a half, I think until the mid-2020s, like they did in the past. That means you've got to find other ways of making money. Well, there are a lot of ways to do that. For example, just on the interest rate way, if you still want to make money off of bonds, but you believe the interest rate is increasing, then you sell the long bond short. You short the long bond. That just bets on the fact that we're going to go upward from these historically low interest rates to more normal ones. I can make money off that. Bond prices will fall. I can short the long bond. Or I can go another strategy. 
China is growing at 9%. India is growing at 7%. They're developing enormous middle classes the size of the entire United States. Those people buy things like American middle class do. They buy everything from toothpaste to Kentucky Fried Chicken. And so everything they increasingly want to buy is something we can go look at the companies in America who sell those things, and we can invest in the products which are being increasingly sold abroad. So we could tap into their growth. That's another strategy. Commodities in a times of higher inflation. People look to real estate and they look to commodities, which are historically good hedge against inflation, particularly in parts of America for real estate where the people are moving to. People are moving in America from a lot now from state to state, so you should pay attention to the states to which they're moving and avoid the states that they're leaving, like California, because of their bad policies. Real commodities, real estate are another alternative. There's a whole array of things out there. You can hedge shifts in the yield curve, sell on one end of the yield curve, buy on the other, as the yield curve is definitely going to shift a lot over the coming years like it did in the late 70s. In the late 70s, we had this enormous shifting of the yield curve, and that provided astute traders ways of making money off of just shifts in the yield curve. But I will say, though, and I firmly believe this, I got a PhD in economics when I was 25, which was 40 years ago, roughly. And I've been doing this for years, and I'm a finance professor at a really good university, one of the top finance departments in the country. I was at the Fed, with the Fed 25 years, the only chief economist in Fed history. Even I don't manage my money. I have had to find a really good money manager who's on the same wavelength I'm on, and I trust them. This is the decade for really good money managers to prove their salt with their client. That's what you do. You study, you scour the earth looking for deals. You understand how all the evolution of the economy, the economic environment, what it means for financial performance. And that's where you show your mettle. And this is going to be a great decade for the really good money managers. Well, Dr. Cox, I really appreciate you joining us today. A lot of wisdom in your words. For myself personally, I look at some issues and I can't imagine a better time for opportunity. When you look at, for example, what's happening in North Dakota with the oil boom and the opportunities that might be there. And then on the other hand, you see a government that spends more money they take in and nobody wants to face the issues. It's really easy to be bipolar in your outlook today, but I really appreciate you sharing today, and hopefully we can have you back in the future. I would love to, Jim. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us this week, and tune in again next week as we explore another phase of the real wealth process. And remember, if anything you heard in today's show you'd like to get more information about, contact your real wealth advisor. Also, if you feel that any of this information will be helpful to a friend or family member, Just click the forward to a friend button.